Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to March's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Later on, I'll be talking to Greg Bowes, CEO of Northern Graphite, on the graphite market outlook and his company's groundbreaking deal to become one of the largest producers in the world outside China. But for now, I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrials Energy, to run through some of the key talking points from February. Just ahead of that, I'd like to thank our sponsor. Renforth Resources is developing the Victoria West Sulfide Nickel Polymetallic Project, which is located in Quebec, Canada. Situated within one hour's drive of the Horn Smelter, Canada's only copper nickel smelter, the project boasts road access and nearby hydroelectric power infrastructure. The company is looking to define a maiden resource from a body with a six-kilometer strike length and has already embarked on a drilling and evaluation program for this year. Renforth Resources is listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange with ticker RFR. Welcome, Cormac. No new year to celebrate this month. How are you going to cope? Uh, well, we have St. Patrick's Day, Matt. So don't really know yet. It's every month we, there's something to go. Something okay, to look forward brilliant, to. Brilliant. Besides what, this podcast. What are we going to do mean? in April then? <laughs> <laughs> You'll find out. First of April. <laughs> okay, cool. I should look forward to that. Well, we've got a lot to discuss this month. And maybe we'll start with raw material price rises. Obviously, we are um, pretty used to what's been happening in, in lithium over the last sort of six to 12 months or so. But a new raw material price driver this month, which is nickel, and of course, concerns in the nickel market due to the potential for trade related issues with, with Russia producing something like nine to 10% of global nickel production, but around about 14% of global class one nickel supply. And, and class one nickel, of course, is effectively the, the key raw material for, for electric vehicles. So real concerns about that. And of course, that led to the huge spike in, in nickel prices, uh, which was caused by a, a very, very substantial short squeeze, a major Chinese industrial group had hedged its exposure on the London Metal Exchange and had a very substantial short position in the nickel market, which ended up having to be covered, which led to this huge short squeeze in the nickel market. Prices touched $100,000 a tonne on the LME before the market was um, was frozen effectively and, and Tuesday's trading yeah. was rolled back. But the big question now is, you know, where at a nickel price is going to going to sort of even out at current price that's sh- that shown on screens is around about eighty thousand dollars a ton. For me, uh, I'm going not going to sit on the fence here. That looks well above you know the the nickel price that's justified. So you know where where a nickel price is going to fall to. My feeling is it's somewhere between about thirty five thousand dollars a ton and fifty five thousand dollars a ton. But that's still 100% from where prices were at the beginning of the year, which is obviously a huge, huge impact in terms of battery prices. Well, and economics. Start, started the month, it's almost uh, 100%. Yeah. 
So, yeah, and, and, and I mean, there, there, there's been all sorts of you know, really interesting graph, uh, graphics out and, and around a good piece of analysis by Pharisees, just looking at, at the difference between uh, costs for a Tesla Model 3 between March 21 and March 22, and, and saying that, you know, the lithium hydroxide portion has gone up from 465 US dollars a tonne to 2,440. And I... I emphasize that that is with spot prices that you know some people are on contracts and, and are not paying nearly that that amount of money the nickel component's gone up from 785 US dollars and sorry this is a vehicle to 4700 uh, that's obviously at 80 to 100,000 dollars a ton nickel and then the cobalt component has, has gone up by 50% as well so they're saying that the the cost at spot prices that were prevailing at the time were $7,400 a vehicle for battery raw materials compared to $1,400 previously. So that speaks to the sort of um, price inflation that we're seeing in the industry at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a nuts situation. Like, um, actually, the Shanghai futures market is open today and um, Nikos way down, but, you know, they have uh, more limitations in, in that market. But it's, yeah. uh, from what I can see here, it's down 52,000 RMB right now. Right. 250,000 RMB. Uh, but if, if we're looking at nickel sulfate, it went from this, one month ago, went from uh, on the spot price market, on the spot market, went from about 40,000 up to 55,000 on the ninth or yesterday. So it, it, the, the, the uh, rise, price rises over the last month in nickel metal itself has you know, manifested itself into uh, battery chemicals, yeah. which is nickel sulfate. I guess the question is, how long is it going to take to pass through the supply chain? And you know, as we've as we've seen before, the supply chain in this industry is quite substantial. It's quite long, and it takes you know a lot longer than perhaps you might imagine for price increases to pass through. Probably of the order of eight or nine months from the raw material end to the actual EV end of the supply chain. It may take longer for the pressure to come through on the automakers. But obviously, we know there's going to be pressure. And it's going well, to be... Yeah. Just looking here at a, a 523 is up over about 70,000 RMB over the last month. That's not just obviously nickel is not the main component. Uh, it's nickel rich, but um, mm. but we're seeing that throughout the uh, battery chemistry. And, and the, obviously, the most, the biggest problem for Chinese manufacturers is the unstoppable uh, momentum of lithium carbonate. Well, it's yeah. above 500,000 now, so well above, actually. And hydroxide's been playing catch-up as well. So I think we, we are getting to that point now where you wonder, excuse my French, but where the puke point is for automakers. When do we start to see demand elasticity to price? Do we start to see demand elasticity to price? I mean, you know, one of the issues that we're, we're dealing with in this space is that this move to electric vehicles is not being driven by industry. It's being driven by politics. So, you know, will we um, see... Volkswagen might argue against that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but, you know, will we see, can the auto producers actually afford to back out of this trend? Or effectively, are they going to have to basically continue to make electric vehicles that are going to lose money on a, on a unit per unit basis? Because, you know, that's what governments are requiring them to do. I think it's a really it's a really difficult question, um, uh, and obviously the issues in the nickel market mean that we now have two primary chemistries, LFP, where 
pre-cursed prices have risen very materially. And now ternary, where again, precursor prices are, are, are going to rise very materially. <laughs> there aren't going to be any winners and losers now. Everybody's going to be, you know, suffering for, for much higher raw material prices. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I was looking at the Chinese response during the week. And um, one view, I'm not saying it's the nation's view, is that uh, uh, the nickel, you know, they're basing their future on the LFP, as you just mentioned there. And that the they're not as worried as the runaway nickel train. Uh, as you said, it's more than likely going to come back down to reasonable level in mm. the near term. But um, they're kind of hedged their future on uh, iron phosphate. And it's, it's the lithium carbonate's the big problem for them. You know, we should emphasize here that this raw material shortage, this period of elevated raw material prices is not going to last forever. I mean, you assume if prices remain at these levels, we will see capital come into this, the space of the raw material end of the business. And it'll take, what, five or six years or so to see meaningful project financing, new projects being built. But, you know, in five or six years, we'd expect prices to start to come down again, because there will be enough new supply coming into the market. But obviously, during those five or six years, we are going to see elevated prices. So, you know, does the auto industry just sit there and say, well, fine, let's take it on the, on the, on the head. We're going to take, we're going to make losses on EVs for the next four or five years, but after that, we should be viable. Or do we say, let's look around for, for different technologies to use? Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I'm thinking there's a lot of projects being set up in the Chinese lithium uh, producing provinces. And, um, and a lot of the big battery companies are attached, most notably uh, Goshen, for example. So that's aimed at, now that's the Chinese, China's effort to be self-sufficient in the lithium uh, field. No doubt China will get these products, uh, projects up and running and producing, not in the near term. In the near term, it would be relatively small amounts of battery can lithium chemicals but in the long term if they and in the medium term if they get up and running it could uh, alleviate internationally globally um some of this uh, capacity um gap because any of the models i've seen don't really in the global supply don't include what's going to come online here in china i guess we'll see i mean i think that the issue with a lot of the chinese capacity certainly the brine based capacity is it's going to be reliant on dle so that there is a question about you know whether they'll hit the production targets that they are currently targeting. My experience has been you know don't bet against the Chinese when it when yeah. it comes to capacity additions in China because they'll always find a way, but they may not find a way that's that's cheap or you know hits necessarily hits their targets anytime soon. So I, I think that you know you're right. There is more stuff coming on in China. It's just that. China can't bring on nearly enough internal supply to meet its needs uh, and certainly not to meet sort of global needs. So we still have a, a huge global shortage of material. Okay, well, I think we've done that subject to death. Um, <laughs> yeah, let, yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about EV sales this month. And I noticed that the uh, Wuling Hongguai Mini Losing a little bit of market share, and we have a, a new entrant into the top 10 this month, the cherry ice cream. Brilliant yeah. for a car. Great in the summer months. Yeah, I heard uh, that, you know, also doubles his ice cream van. So if you've seen him park over <laughs> well, by the it beach. it looks like one. <laughs> <laughs> 
the BYD, uh, BYD is doing great sales. I think they're close to 80,000 or 90,000, sorry, in uh, February. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was like that. Like BYD was top of the pile last month as well in January. Uh, so, yeah. so, uh, and uh, Tesla, I guess, are exporting a lot. This is a uh, domestic Chinese sales I'm looking at here. Yeah, but, domestic uh, sales. Yeah. I think uh, Tesla are exporting a lot. And I mean, I think it's very interesting also if you look at the top 10 selling models in, in China, I think three of them are now mini EVs. Another two are small EVs. There's a couple of plugins still there. There's only two full size battery EVs in the top 10, which is the BYD Han and then the Tesla Model Y. I wonder, is that sort of saying something about the direction of travel in, in EV land, that these smaller models with smaller batteries are really starting to dominate? I haven't seen many of them. I'll put that with you. I've seen more Teslas. <laughs> You're than, not, than not you say. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, it depends on, uh, you know, China is divided into urban and uh, rural, basically. I think the uh, obviously sales are much greater. And uh, China's doing a lot to promote EV sales outside the metropolises now, such as Shanghai, yeah. Beijing, Shenzhen. And uh, so uh, mini EV, I think, is very popular in the cities. But it'd be interesting to see what, uh, what kind of cars are, are in demand out in the uh, rural areas. Probably uh, uh, judging on what the current cars are desire, those are mostly four by four SUV type vehicles. If you have the money for that kind of that kind of car out there, but the, it's uh, outside the cities, uh, you know, the uh, four by four SUVs are really uh, really desirable. You know, can't see a mini EV being a great runaround in a bumpy country road, but. Uh, there's a new EV out this month, Hongguan. You know, Hongguan is just not one mini EV. I think they got like 10, close to 10 different models. Right. And they just released the Game Boy. I don't know if Sony uh, signed off on that, but it's got a 300 kilometer range. It's huge, really, for such a small battery pack. What battery pack size is it? I think it's a 15 kilowatt hour, somewhere between 15 and 20. That's amazing. So, I mean, just, just to pick up on a couple of points. I mean, first of all, China, the urban population ratio is about 63%. So cities are, are the bulk of the Chinese car buying population, should we say. So even if China is trying to push EVs out in, into the urban area. You know, the, the second tier cities are like 15 million people. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. So yeah. you know, the second big tier cities and, and even the third tier cities are probably bigger than most Western cities. Yeah, yeah. So even if they are trying to push EVs out into rural areas, we, we're not really expecting that to be a, you know, a big driver in terms of sort of sales over time. I guess my question is, if smaller EVs with smaller batteries is a norm, what does that do in terms of raw materials? Because obviously, if you're using EVs with, say, an average battery size of, say, 30 kilowatt hours, compared to the current average battery size, which is between 50 and 60 kilowatt hours, you can make basically double the number of EVs for the raw materials that are available. So you do wonder if automakers will now start to push towards the smaller EVs for urban populations, which are are very viable. This month, there's been a couple of EV releases in in China. There's been the, the Baidu collaboration with the uh, SAIC. It's a sedan they're releasing, the L7. It's a thousand kilometer range. 
115 kilowatt hour battery pack is the high level. The standard is 93 kilowatt hour. Mm. So, and the, there's three big releases this month. There's uh, the Hoisin Motors ranges to 710 kilometers, and the BYD Plus. You know, they just released a couple of models off their platform, mm. and that's uh, 510 kilometers. So, for those three, it was, they're all well. The, the BYD is a SUV, but um, the other two cars are are, uh, are sedans. I'm not saying that that there won't be any releases of premium models, but I am saying that mass market, which is, you know, the bulk of the volume in the market, is starting to move towards smaller batteries, smaller cars. And obviously, if we can do that, if we can move towards smaller batteries, smaller cars, then we can make more cars with with the raw materials that are available. But if we stick with, you know, 60, 70 kilowatt hour batteries, then we are banging up against raw material capacity constraints effectively this year in my view potentially beginning yeah. of next year and you know we're obviously banging up against pricing as well it's a good point and i often thought about it uh, the difference between ev sales in europe us and china is per unit right and the china has more small evs so, uh, so you maybe one unit of sale in europe is worth two units of sales in china on battery pack size alone yeah, so, it's uh, not it's not quite that level. Yes, I think yeah. the average battery size for the top ten selling models in China currently is about thirty six kilowatt hours, and 36. the average battery size for the top ten selling models in Europe is about forty six kilowatt hours, which is down from from just over fifty in the middle of last year. So there is a material difference. I mean, clearly, China has lower battery sizes. And just to give you an idea, that number for China, when the Tesla Model 3 was the top selling unit in China, the average battery size for for Chinese models was around about 47 uh, kilowatt hours. So it's come down 10 kilowatt hours in the last sort of two years or so. You know, there's a a deluge of uh, SUVs and Cybertrucks coming on board in the next who knows when the cyber trucks come? It's constantly delayed. But uh, Rivian uh, and a lot of those um, Mercedes EQ are going to be—they're pretty large cars, and they are. And, and I mean, I think one of the reasons why we've seen the delays is because of—I mean, Tesla cited last year battery availability. They may may very well be this year citing citing um, raw material availability for those batteries because obviously those batteries are a lot bigger. And, you know, that, that's what's causing the, the ruptions in, in the industry. So I'd like to see a lot of, a lot of those. Uh, Cybertruck on one scale and mini EVs on the other side yeah. of the scale. How many is it balanced out? Yeah. Five mini EVs to one Cybertruck. Yeah. Something, something like that, isn't it? So, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, conundrum. We could probably talk all day about it, but, but uh, let's move on. A lot more battery factory announcements in China again this month yeah yeah let me go to my battery factory tracker a couple of uh new players stepping into the uh, ev battery such as sunwada i don't know if you're familiar with sunwada but they supply apple with the pouch cells for uh, laptops and ipads maybe phones and i I guess phones as well but they they made their business in consumer electronics now they're stepping into ev cells and battery packs and modules and, and the whole thing oh there's a uh a quasi solid state 20 gigawatt hour uh, solid uh, quasi solid state uh, factory currently under construction very good uh, yeah yeah good to see so that's what three of them now well this is quasi so. oh okay so not not true solid <laughs> state so yeah okay 
Well, there's an article out during the week. It gathered some, uh, caught some attention where some investigators, uh, I forget which university, I want to say MIT or Harvard, but they found a uh, solid with a little bit of liquid is a, a much more uh, stable device. I mean, so uh, we, we're, we're getting, beginning, and with SES as well, we're beginning to see the uh, rise of the, SES is not a uh, quasi-solid state, I should say, but uh, we're going to we see the rise of a uh, quasi-solid state also in, in, into the frame, not just pure solid state. All the battery announcements this month, uh, manufacturers are like SVOL, JEV, ver, ver, relatively new player, Cosmex, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They used to make cylindrical, well, they do, they make cylindrical cells, tier two suppliers. And, and we're up. also sort of seeing some guys coming into the industry from outside on the sort of cathode side and on the raw materials side. I saw Lohman Billions, which is a, oh, yeah. a TIO2 manufacturer coming in potentially on the LFP side. It makes sense to potentially backward integrate because obviously iron sulfate, which is a um, key raw material of uh, TIO2 to production is used in the LFP supply chain. The byproduct, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a key byproduct, sorry. and. Um, I hear there's a few Chinese building material and chemical manufacturers. Uh, there's uh, cement makers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. There is, uh, well, all the, all the major fertilizer companies are, are stepping in. Yeah, the cement maker uh, found quite unusual because they don't have any of the raw products available. But uh, the fertilizer Probably just guys found a higher margin product. <laughs> Fertilizer guys found they had uh, a lot of phosphoric acid or monoammonium phosphate. And as you just said, the TiO2 guys have the uh, ferrosulfate. Yeah. And the only thing they need is someone to neither have made iron phosphate. That's, that could be an issue for them. Uh, yeah. You know, the uh, production uh, is not uh, until recently or even now, the, you know, the, the amount of iron phosphate being produced there is not in the vast quantities that are expected. And, you know, there's only a couple of really established iron phosphate producers in China, and, and they're relatively small scale compared to the uh, NMC guys. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think there's any getting away from the fact that there are going to be quite substantial bottlenecks in the LFP supply chain as we try and extend the, extend the scale. I don't think the market's really paying enough attention to that. But uh, yeah. I hope, I guess we'll there's see. There's plenty of phosphate rock around. Yeah, but not necessarily of the right quality. But uh, yeah. Okay, so um, just to finish off today's podcast, just a couple of sort of comments. I mean, we, one of the issues with regards to increasing raw material production in, in this space is obviously how difficult it is to get projects done, to get projects authorized, financed, etc. And there has been an increase, a very substantial increase in resource nationalism over the last sort of 12 to 18 months, um, we're starting to see DRC looking to renegotiate some of its um, contracts with Chinese companies. We've seen the Mexican government come out and say that it doesn't believe that uh, lithium resources should be owned by private companies. It believes it should be nationalized. We've seen a, a lot of noise coming out of Chile with regards to either one, nationalizing the, the lithium and copper industries, or, or two, giving indigenous populations the, the right of veto over new projects if, if they don't stack up environmentally. It looks like it's becoming increasingly difficult to do business in a lot of regions. And 
you know, it, it's fair to say that the industry is is struggling to increase capacity into one of the tightest markets that, that many people have ever seen. And then just a very interesting story also that there have been a lot of environmentalist objections to this proposal by the Slovenian presidency of the European Union to, to push back the European battery passport because they just don't think that um, Europe's going to be able to, to sort of hit the requirements for domestically sourced raw materials. And I have to say, I completely agree with them because I, I just don't think that there's any sort of urgency in Europe with regards to, to developing raw or even midstream materials projects by 2025. I think it's, it's going to be impossible for Europe to hit those sort of targets. So uh, if we think about it, how long have they been producing this uh, a EU gigafactory map? Maybe two years by now? As now? Yeah, um, basically, like Nordvolt is the only company. I think they, are they going to mass produce here this year? Well, they only produced the cell uh, quite recently. Uh, yeah, so I mean, they had their I'm, first cell quite recently, and uh, yeah, I think they're expecting the, the the factory to be in production by the end of this year. Obviously, LG Chem is in production. The LG um, Chem, yeah. SK, SK, uh, LG Chem. Uh, they're not dependent on the European uh, supply. Europe for their supplies at the moment. Um, but the, like, who's going to be up and running by 2025? Look how long it took uh, Northville. Uh, well, so. yeah. I, I mean, there, there have been announcements of something like 350 gigawatt hours of, um, uh, of battery capacity, I think, in, in the US and Europe that's expected to be on by 2025. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see how much of it can be. But it's not going to be possible to source that raw material for... European battery factories from Europe, not by any stretch of the imagination, because yeah, you yeah. know the the planning regulations uh, are so so difficult to get through. I mean, I you know I I track a number of projects in Europe, and I don't think a major project in Europe has been fully financed or approved in the last three years that I've been tracking. So uh, Tesla, have they got all their permits yet? I think they just got another one recently. And yeah, I think I read that Tesla got their final permit. So it could be in production, hopefully in the near future, but, but we'll see. I mean, that's already what, 12, 14, 15 months behind schedule. And that's for a downstream project. So, yeah. you know, you can get an idea for how difficult it is to get these upstream primary production projects authorized in the EU. I fear that the EU is going to fall behind because of the red tape. You know, if I can go and build a battery supply chain in North America, if I can go and build lithium and graphite and nickel and copper and and cobalt in Canada and, you know, build a cathode plant and build battery factories in North America in three or four years, people aren't going to invest in the EU because it's so difficult to do business here. I think the U.S. plants, battery plants will be up a lot quicker because it's LG Chem and SKI, right? So they know how to build a battery plant and they're bringing their chemical suppliers with them, not raw materials. Like, yeah, the chemical suppliers are also coming with them. A couple of of announcements also in terms of of raw materials. So intermediate materials, I think POSCO Chem announced a deal with GM. And I think BASF have locked in a site in uh, in Quebec, I think, for cathode materials plants. So, you know, we are starting to see some movement in North America as well in a way that we were really not seeing to the same extent in Europe. North America could definitely accelerate and have a more established battery industry in, in a, 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 first of all, with the players involved, 
Second of all, with the mineral resources and the access uh, across the border in, in, in uh, Canada and uh, the lithium supplies that the U.S. is capable of getting, I think um, there's a good chance the U.S. could be ahead. I think the U.S. is going to leapfrog Europe at this stage. Uh, well, I'm going to say North America is going North to America, Europe yeah. at, at this stage because I, I don't. I just don't think the Europeans can help themselves to just, um, you know, continue to to sort of muddy up muddy up the waters, make the planning procedures more difficult, and um, yeah, I mean, just so so much red tape. Well, how about the UK? That uh, maybe you guys can get up, get a little bit ahead. Yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not holding out for that, but uh, you know, uh, we're we're very good at plucking defeat uh, from the jaws of victory in the UK. So uh, we'll, right, we'll see. All right. <laughs> Great. Okay, uh, we will call it a day there. So I'll say uh, thank you very much to Cormac, and uh, look forward to speaking to you next month. Uh, thanks, Matt. Talk to you again. Bye bye. Moving on to our interview now. Graphite has long been the bridesmaid of the battery materials industry. That brings that there are starting to be signs now that it's finally going to become the bride. Through growth and M&A, a new first tier of graphite producers and developers is starting to develop. And I'm delighted to welcome Greg Bowes, the CEO of Northern Graphite, which has joined that group. Greg, thanks very much for joining us today. Morning, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so uh, before we start talking about Northern Graphite, I'd just like to start with a few questions about the industry. I think it's fair to say that investors struggle to get their heads around the graphite industry, and it, it definitely is a complex industry. Anyone looking for a leg up can download our Investor's Guide to Graphite from our website for free. Now, looking at the industry it's been the large size concentrate baskets like Super Jumbo and Jumbo size that have commanded premium prices. Now it looks as though it's smaller baskets like small and medium that are in demand for the anode industry. Do you think those sort of baskets will see a price appreciation relative to the large size baskets going forward? Uh, yes, I do. The battery industry pretty much uses small and medium flake because it's plentiful and cheap. And uh, the demand has been growing 20% a year. So that's definitely a recipe for higher prices uh, among the smaller sizes. Those increases will also drive up the prices for all flake sizes. But I think what you will see is the um, premium will narrow. I think two other trends that you should uh, just keep in mind is the growth numbers for graphite are so spectacular, if I can put it that way, that the industry is going to be forced to use larger flake sizes, which they haven't done just because they're more expensive. So you're going to see the demand move up into the larger sizes. And I could even see a scenario where an off-taker, be it an auto manufacturer or a battery manufacturer, We'll do a deal with the mine, and they'll grind it all up into anode material, regardless of flake size, because they have to. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's quite a considerable uh, uh, difference in view from the sort of prevailing view in the industry at the moment. But I, I guess I kind of agree with you, because I think there's so much new supply coming on. And, you know, we could see an oversupply in the sort of very large flake sizes over time. Uh, given the growth of the anode industry? Yes, I, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, when you build a mine, you can use the smaller stuff for batteries. And um, 
and the larger fleet markets are smaller. So there will be some oversupply there, which will again cause the premiums to narrow. But again, as I said, I think eventually it's all going to be used. Okay. Okay. Great. So, uh, I mean, if we look a little bit more near term, a lot of the positive move in flake prices in the past 12 months has been because of shutdowns in China in both natural flake and in synthetic graphite capacity. Now that the, the Olympics is over, do you think those are going to continue? Yes, but for a somewhat different reason. The Chinese industry has historically built inventory in the summer and fall, shut down in the winter, and we've always seen a bit of a price blip in the winter because of that. It's been exacerbated somewhat by the Olympics. But, you know, the bigger question is how close is the Chinese natural graphite industry to full production? We saw in the fall uh, shortages of inventory uh, going into the winter season, again, because of 20% plus growth in demand. So, you know, there's a potential there for some very significant price increases relating to shortages and uh, rapid demand growth. I think it's fair to say that a lot of these price increases haven't really been picked up in terms of graphite equity performance by, by the stock market. I think you would agree. That's correct. And again, part of the reason for that is graphite pricing is less uh, transparent than uh, most <laughs> other industries. Okay, so uh, let's come on to the reason we're talking today, uh, which is because you're in the process of executing, quite frankly, a company changing deal, the acquisition of a working graphite mine and an idled mine from Imeris. Can you just tell us a little bit about the assets that you're acquiring? Firstly, um, there's 20 or 25 advanced stage graphite companies out there with projects all looking for financing, and it's difficult for investors to sort that out. We're dealing or doing a deal with Imaris, which we believe has leapfrogged, enabled us to leapfrog uh, those companies and put us at the front of the pack. We're buying Imaris's natural graphite division, which consists of the Lactazeal producing mine in North America the only producing mine in North America. And we're buying their Namibian graphite operation, which is currently on care and maintenance. The reason for that was design flaws in the process plant they built. But uh, we're going to bring that back online at about 30,000 tons a year by the end of this year. And it's located in Namibia, which is a very good jurisdiction, high-quality graphite five hours from the deep water port of Walvis Bay, which provides great access to European markets. So the net effect of those two transactions is by the end of this year, we will be the third largest non-Chinese graphite producer and have two very large development projects in the pipeline to meet uh, future growth in EV demand. And what are the synergies between the uh, Canadian mine and your existing uh, development project? Well, there's a couple. Uh, they're not that far apart for starters, uh, but all of these projects, including the one in Namibia, have high quality graphite, which is not true of all projects. They're located close to infrastructure and they're in politically stable countries. So it's a very attractive package of assets. Um, I'm based in Ottawa and the Lactazeal mine is about two hours by car to the east, and our Bissett Creek project is about uh, where I am right now. So um, 
We're located in the southern part of Canada. The operations are fairly close together from a management perspective. They're close to infrastructure and they're close to markets. Okay. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of graphite developers are plotting downstream developments to extract the full value from the the products that they're intending to produce. Do you as a company have plans to go downstream? Absolutely. If you look at the auto manufacturers and the lithium-ion battery manufacturers, they're not showing any inclination to get involved in the actual production of anode material. They want somebody to do it for them. And they're kind of um, ignoring all the issues and challenges relating to doing that in the graphite space. We are definitely going to get involved in that. We are very... um, I'll say conservative professional company, we want to have a plan together, get a plan together, which is executable and doable and realistic. We're not just going to announce that we're doing it without having that plan in place, but it's definitely our plan to produce anode material in North America from our mines here and in Europe from our mine in Namibia. So I think fair to say that you're looking to get the actual mines in production before you worry about your downstream plans. So get cash flow before you you worry about sort of um, moving into the anode business. Well, it's a little bit of a parallel strategy. Um, We already have production in North America and we'll have production out of Africa by the end of this year. And we are already uh, in the process of developing our plans for the actual uh, anode material production. So it will take a little longer, obviously, to execute that plan than getting the mines into production. But um, yeah, we're proceeding down um, that path in a parallel fashion. And are you looking to develop your own technology to go downstream or, or will you license somebody's existing technology? We will not be developing our own technology. There are many large players that have been in this business for years and have SWAT teams of PhDs. And, you know, it's a little presumptuous for junior companies to come along and all of a sudden emerge with a plan to do it better and quicker and cheaper. I'm always a little bit skeptical about that. There are some very strong partners out there that have the know-how, they have the technology, and we can uh, get into production a lot more quickly by partnering with one of them than trying to do it on our own. Okay, so significantly lower execution risk as well. And what are your long-term plans for Northern Graphite? I mean, where do you want to be in, say, three years? Where do you want to be in five years beyond that? Well, we want to be one of the largest uh, natural graphite producers in the world, and we want to be a major supplier of uh, anode material. We definitely have the assets uh, uh, right now in terms of becoming a major natural graphite producer. Uh, As I said, these two we are buying from Emirates will make us the third largest by the end of the year. And then there are two big development projects behind that production, then it's a question of um, building out the um, anode manufacturing capacity in North America and Europe to achieve that goal. Okay, thanks very much. I think it's fair to say that graphite stocks are trading at a bit of a discount to other battery material stocks currently. What -hmm. do you think it is that investors don't understand about the graphite sector? Well, I think it's two things. One is 
Despite the phenomenal growth in battery demand, graphite prices are still relatively low, although, as you said at the start, they have been rising fairly significantly. And in terms of stimulating investor interest, uh, there's nothing like the potential for profits. Uh, We've seen that in um, lithium a number of times. Lithium is also difficult to understand, but we've had some pretty impressive price increases and um, a lot of investor interest in lithium. And I think that's going to happen in uh, graphite as well. The other thing that makes it a little confusing for investors is As I said earlier, there are 20 or 25 advanced stage projects out there. How do you try and pick a winner? Uh, There are a lot of different geographies, a lot of different qualities, a lot of technical aspects to go through. So it's a little bit bit daunting for the average investor to try and sort that out. Okay, thanks very much. And um, as an investor, what are the the key catalysts for for Northern Graphite over the next six months or so? (laughs) With this EMRS uh, transaction, our whole strategy here was to make it easy for investors and create the obvious uh, entry point. We want to close this EMRS transaction within the next two weeks. So I think that's holding us back a little bit. Once that's done, uh, we're already in production at Lactazeal. We want to bring Namibia back online within a year. We want to raise financing for our Bissett Creek project here in Canada. And uh, we want to announce, develop and announce a plan to produce anode material in North America and Europe. Okay, okay. That's quite a lot of catalysts. Uh, And what would you say are the major risks for investors at the current time? Well, I guess it goes back to what I was saying earlier. The macro picture is pretty solid for graphite. There's this uh, tsunami of demand coming down the pipe from the EV and battery markets. There's dependence on China. There's a lack of new production capacity in the West. So all of that creates a very good opportunity. The biggest risks for investors, I think, um, as I said, are trying to sort out the winners and the losers and the contenders and the pretenders among the 20 or 25 companies that are trying to do what we're doing. And um, as I said, uh, we're trying to make it easier for them by putting together this plan that starts with the uh, Immerse acquisition. Okay. And just finally, what do you think it is that the market doesn't get about Northern Graphite at the current time trading at this valuation? It's really the transformational change that this, um, this acquisition is going to make in the, in the company. We're going from a development story to a producer almost overnight. And uh, we're probably a lot more conservative than uh, most graphite companies out there. So I think that's held back our valuation. But I think in terms of the quality of the assets that we have or will have very shortly and the business plan, at the end of the day, it comes down to value and not promotion. And uh, I think that's going to be reflected in our share price going forward. Greg Bowes, CEO of Northern Graphite, thanks very much for your time today. It was a pleasure, Matt. End of our podcast for March. I'll say thank you again to our sponsor, Renforth Resources. Check them out on their website. They are RFR on the Canadian Securities Exchange. You can get more detail on any of the topics we discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. 
I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.